conference recording started. Okay, everybody. It looks like we are ready to go. This is Kim Gorham with Chiropractic Masters International and ChiroRockstar.com. Welcome, everybody, to the philosophy of chiropractic. This is one of my very favorite, in the whole wide world, my very favorite topics to do. Um, I went down this rabbit hole of discovering chiropractic and all of the wonderful history that we have, and it has been such an amazing journey. And, you know, people ask me, well, why, do you think it's still relevant today? What, what about the history of chiropractic? How is it relevant? And I say it absolutely is relevant today because we talk a lot about the philosophy of chiropractic. And starting at the very beginning, the study of the fundamental nature and knowledge and reality and existence of chiropractic is based on philosophy. And what is chiropractic to us? Well, chiropractic is a system of complementary medicine based on the diagnosis and manipulative treatment of misalignments of the joints. That's what the definition is if you look it up. And to me, that is not what the definition of chiropractic is. It's, it's way bigger and much broader than that. And we'll go into that in a little bit. But my point on this is if we don't define chiropractic, they will. And this they, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see it right now. But if we don't define it for ourselves, then the medical profession will definitely define it for us. So we really need to get stronger and uh and knowledgeable about the history of chiropractic and, and relate it back to where we are. So I'm going to start way in the beginning. What I found out about chiropractic is I was digging deep, and I was only going to do this. I was making a recording for – or a PowerPoint, actually, for a speech that I was doing for some chiropractic assistants in Canada, and I wanted to share, you know, a little bit more history. And I went down this rabbit hole and started uncovering more and more things and I'm truly now a hook, line, and sinker, just completely into it. So back in the day, let's go all the way back to um, medicine in the medieval times. It was creepy. I'll just call it what it is. It was creepy. They were basically using human beings as guinea pigs. They were checking, you know, to see if these potions would work. They would put people on racks and stretch them. You know, they would just willy-nilly try to do surgery, and many people died. Many, many people died in their attempts. And one of my teachers, my, my pastor, who has since passed, he was a chiropractor too, uh, he says that we have to learn where we have been to understand where we are going. And that is definitely true. I use that line all the time. So in the earliest times back when they were training physicians. So we're talking about how medicine and chiropractic came to be in such turmoil against each other. Well, back in the early days, medical training in Britain, uh, about 1123 AD, started at the St. Bartholomew's Hospital. And the tuition was zero dollars. This is quite interesting. It was zero dollars for medical college until the late 1700s. And then they, they, the students didn't have to pay for tuition. They just had to pay for the housing and the books and the expenses, which were only affordable by the very wealthy. Because in order to um, go and become a medical doctor, it took six years to complete the bachelor's degree and then another 12 years 
to earn a master's degree. And then you had to go on and study further abroad in Europe and, and different places to actually get your degree. So think about that. If you were just an everyday person back in the day, your lifestyle depended on the crops that you could could produce and the uh, the uh, you know fields needed tending. So unless you had a benefactor or somebody that could really really pay your way, both not just in your expenses but also your traveling, then you were not going to be a medical doctor. That that wasn't going to happen for you. So back in the day, it was uh, in 1765, the Pennsylvania College was the first medical university in the Americas. And it was also, incidentally, the very first college of any kind that, or medical college of any kind, that charged tuition on top of the books and the travel and the everyday expenses. And this was, this was an interesting thing. Now, why do you think they didn't have to pay in those days to become a doctor? Hmm, well, that seems like quite an education for free, right? Well, the reason why is because back then, if you were to walk into somebody's home and, and they were very sick, you know, the chances of you getting sick and dying were pretty high. Uh, the, the cleanliness of, of the situation, you know, wasn't so great. So people, a lot of people were not interested in diving into the body. It was also considered bad luck. Bones of any kind signified death. And even today in some cultures, bones are feared. I'm hearing somebody's background noise. I'm not sure if we have everybody muted or not, but I hear somebody working. Maybe they're taking notes. Uh, so back to the Pennsylvania College founded in 1765, the tuition and expenses were about the equivalent of 35000 per year, plus housing and supplies in today's standards. Now, that's, again, that, that's so, so much money at the time. College started at 5 a.m. and lasted all day. There was really no time to, to tend to anything other than to your studies. Uh, we already discussed that oftentimes Europe was, was required for them to complete their degree. Now, what's interesting, and I have, what I'm going to do is put up a video. I'm actually constructing a video right now for this. Uh, presentation that I have, and, and I will put it out to anybody if you're interested, because I got my hands on some really juicy documents and uh, some old diplomas, and it's pretty interesting how far we've come. But this is about uh, 1775 to 1783 was the American Revolutionary War time, and uh, we were fighting for independence. There was a lot of, of deaths. Um, medicine was brutal and barbaric. Back then, the life expectancy was only 35 years old. So if you were, you know, 45 in, in today's standards, you're not young. But back then, you're ancient. 45 was ancient. There was a high mortality rate for pregnancies due to the lack of midwives and, and no surgery. If you were sick or injured, it was considered an act of God. Um, you know, they were very spiritual, and they felt that a demon may have come upon you if you got sick. Uh, if your child fell out of the tree, well, you can make another child, but you can't afford a trip to town, you know, and, and surgery was, was out of the question. One in four people didn't survive surgery of any kind, and that's because of the infections and the blood loss. But death and disease was a huge part of everyday life. 
And what I find kind of interesting and, and slightly amusing is, you know, when people would go to a wake or a burial, that was considered a time of uh, celebration. You know, this was everybody would come, drink food, and Oh, I'm hearing people in the background. Hello, thanks for joining us. All right, so modern medicine was only for the privileged class. That was really, that's, they were the only people that could afford the medicine. And did they really want it? No, at the point, they they didn't. So we were moving on to uh, now the Revolutionary War. Uh, The medicine and and the types of things that happened were, were incredible. But then we go to the Civil War. And that happened 1861 to 1865, and it was so brutal. It was cousin against cousin and brother against father, and everybody lost. But the crazy thing was that there was only 8,000 people that were killed on the battlefield as a result of a a wound or, you know, a a battle scar. But we lost over 50,000 people in that war on the battlefield, um, not just from the battlefield, it happened after the battlefield because of the disease and the germs. And this is before the sterilization technique really was able to be transported to the battlefield. So it was pretty intense. It was pretty intense. If you had to have uh, an amputated limb, excuse me, if you had to have an amputation, if you were an officer, then you would get a wooden stick to bite down on and you would get some analgesic, so, you know, a little bit of brandy for the pain. But if you were an enlisted soldier, you're, you're out of luck. You were lucky if you got the stick. And uh, they were training people to do amputations in the field, you know, just can you cook? Yes, I can cook. Well, you can wield a knife. Let's get you out there and start butchering some people up. I mean, it was pretty bad. Uh, anybody that could be trained in on the battlefield, they were trained. And oftentimes... Uh, they came back for more. So after, you know, um, all of these people, all these generals and people advanced in rank pretty quickly because a lot of times you died before you made it up in the rank. So all of these, you know, young generals were coming out of the field completely traumatized. And one of those, one of those people, one of those physicians slash generals was Andrew Taylor Still. And Andrew Taylor, Taylor Still uh, he went on to learn how to – he became the father of osteopathy. And it's interesting because we found a link between him and D.J. Palmer, the founder of chiropractic, where we think that they learned their bone-setting skills from the same person, and they were encouraged to go off and, and do their own learning hospital. So that's how they did it back in the day. You, If you were going to learn a new medical skill, they had the uh, facility right inside of the college. So um, if there were you know, amputations that they were learning about, they would have a big open area where 100 people would come and watch this one person be operated on. That's how they learned. So Andrew Taylor Still went on to learn how to uh, set bones, and D.J. Palmer also went on to learn, I'm sorry, D.D. Palmer went on to learn how to set bones. So we're coming to, to our the hero of our story here pretty soon, but I'm trying to give you guys an idea of the history and where chiropractic was born from, because it's really important to understand the philosophy of where we're at now and why it's so important. So back then when Andrew Taylor still came out and was learning 
how to set bones and, and becoming the father of osteopathy, Dee Dee Palmer was on the other side of the fence, and he was learning other types of healing techniques. He was into, well, first of all, um, once you had become a doctor. So think about this. They are in the United States, this territory. We still have Indians back then, you know. So in order to go to town, it was quite a scary trip. You could you could be scalped. You could be you could have your horse stolen. You could have your children stolen from you. There was a lot. It was a very dangerous trek, and it usually took at least a few days to get to any large town, depending on where you were. A good solid four days ride. Well, <clears throat> if little little Susie falls out of a tree and she has a broken arm, you know what are they going to do? They they would not chance the ride for a single child. They wouldn't do that back in the day. But if you had a medical book, so say somebody in in the town had a medical book, and and books back then were also quite expensive and rare and hard to come by. So oftentimes if you had a book, it was displayed prominently on your shelf, you know, to show how how rich you were. Look, at I have disposable income enough for a book. Um, So if you had a medical book and you could read it, so that's the other caveat, you had to be able to read and have a book, which was rare. So little Susie falls out of the tree, and she goes over to old man Jenkins, who they know has a medical book, and he can read it. So this is what started what I call kitchen medicine. So this is where, you know, little Susie is crying, and old man Jenkins is wondering what they're doing there, and they clear all of the stuff off the kitchen table, they get out the candles, they open up the book, and they try to splint the arm. Well, now, if that worked, and little Susie is better, you know, say it heals and, and they got the bone in the right spot and there was no infection and, and he healed little oh, Susie. Yeah. Well, old man Jenkins is now a hero, right, in the in the community. Old man Jenkins. So now anytime any other little child falls out of the tree, guess where they're going? They're going to old man Jenkins. So after about seven, eight, nine, ten years of this, old man Jenkins has no perfected one. his craft. No one. No one. He's gotten good at healing people. He's no gotten good at birthing babies. Less people are, um, you know, being killed. Um, so he he's the the town hero. He is eating well. Uh, people used to pay with pies and chickens and hogs and, you know, if you birthed a baby that was that was you know having a hard time, you you might even get a horse out of the deal. So that old man Jenkins has quite a wonderful, uh, wonderful feeling when he walks about town because he's trusted, he's revered. He's loved. He's part of the family. So now what happens is we have our city slickers that have gone through their professional training. They've been told, because they've they've spent a fortune now, a fortune on their education, they've been told all they have to do is walk into a town, set up a little shop that says the doctor is in, and now they're in business. And all of the townspeople are going to, you know, flood, flood their doors. Well, I think we've heard that once or twice in chiropractic college. I think everyone's told the same thing. But what happened, you know, what they told them and what happened was not a reality. And that's still today what's happening. It's not a reality. You don't just open your doors and people stream in. It takes considerable marketing and work. So that's what happened was, um, so old old man Jenkins hears that there's a city slicker in town, and he's got a magic black bag filled with potions and uh, snake oil, and, and he's got a fancy coach. 
do you think that those townspeople are going to trust this guy? He's just come into town, man. He looks kind of weird. He's got a shiny carriage. Nobody has one of those. He's walking with a cane. You know, he looks all shiny. They ran those city sector, doc- city sector doctors out of town. The first time any one of them tried to come into town, they were run clean out. And the reason why is because why? They love Doc Jenkins. He's been with them forever. And incidentally, we found out that Dee Dee Palmer was Doc Jenkins. So he, he was the guy that was doing the, um, the healing on the families in the town. And people were hearing about him from far and wide. And he was, he was revered. And then these new spangled things called magnets came out and magnetic healing. And it was, it was the age of Tesla. And if you were scientific, then you could charge more money. <laughs> That's the bottom line. D.D. Palmer was, was quite a good businessman also. And so he got into magnetics because that, that was the, the day and age. That's what they were doing. And it was quite popular. So I could heal your broken arm with magnets or without magnets. What would you prefer? They would pay more for the magnetic healing. It wasn't just magnets, but it was like the whole energy um, that he used as well. But he was Doc Jenkins, and that's an important point because his patients trusted him. Um, so what happened was, this is where chiropractic was born and where um, where there was a great <coughs> anti-chiropractic movement that came through because <laughs> the city slicker doctors were really angry. They were mad at their college. They were mad at the Pennsylvania College. In fact, a bunch of them, and I've run across some transcripts of the minutes of the meeting, they were asking for refunds. They were asking for refunds. So what happened was the, um, you know, college board, of course, doesn't want to give back all that money because that's a lot of money they're going to have to give back. And what happened, I'm going to go ahead and mute this because I think that we have... I can hear people talking, so if we could just keep the lines quiet, that would be so great. I don't know how to do this. is Dr. Mike's system, so (laughs) we're going to just have to be quiet as we're recording, please. Um, Anyway, so they were asking for refunds and didn't want to get a refund. So what are they going to do? Well, they, they promised them that they would help them with advertising and marketing to change the situation around. Uh, and back in the day, in order to get any kind of coverage that was a national kind of coverage, which was very rare, uh, you had to have a photograph and you had to have a parade. <laughs> the biggest news of the day were parades. So the college said, hey, we're going to go ahead and give you a parade, a homecoming parade. We're going to have all of you medical doctors come, and we're going to um, – you know, provide this marketing opportunity for all of our for all of our doctors that have graduated. <clears throat> so they did something which was normal. They created a parade homecoming committee, and everybody got together from far and wide to, to plan this this parade. And while we were sitting around the table, they started to talk about business. You know, all these doctors in one room. So how's business going for you? Oh, it's just terrible, terrible. How's it going for you? Terrible, terrible. Everybody, all around, all around the table, it was terrible. And they decided at that point that they were, they had to do something. Something had to be done. And it was exactly the same time that the medicines were starting to come out from the poppy fields. 
So we have Bayer, Bayer Aspirin. Everybody knows them. They were into the cocaine market. And we had the Tylenol and the cocaine tooth drops and all of these, um, the laudanum syrups were coming out at the same time. And all of the uh, old Doc Jenkins, you know, they, they, they were wary of these new spangled medicines because they saw the effects on their patients. And their patients would go and try some of this stuff, and then they would come back and they would go to Doc Jenkins or Dee Dee Palmer, and they were, they were, got addicted to these painkillers. They started, you know, overdosing on drugs. People were dying left and right. So <clears throat> this is the medical climate that Dee Dee Palmer was living in. He had, you know, they had the wars, so they saw the horrors of, of the surgeries and, and all of the limbs and people dying from the European medicine. And Dee Dee Palmer said, hell no, I am not going to be like those people. I am not going to be like a city slicker. I'm going to stay true to my roots. And that was um, around the same time that he, he had learned uh, from the same person, I believe, and I'm going to say it's, it's my belief from what I've uncovered, the same person he learned how to set bones from as Andrew Still. So it's, it's quite interesting because Andrew Still came to town and was going to set up shop where D.D. Palmer was. He was like, oh, no, I know that guy. I'm not going to set up shop there. So he went in another town on the other side. So they both had their, their colleges going. Uh, D.D. Palmer decided to call his chiropractic. Um, and he and Andrew Still also, I, we found that they were at some sort of revival um, some sort of spiritual revival where it's reported that they stayed up late into the night arguing and debating what controlled and coordinated the nervous, the, the, all of the functions of the body. And D.D. Palmer, because of all of his autopsies and things that he had done on, on humans and animals up to the time, he knew that it was the nervous system. He knew. And Andrew Stills, who didn't have the same, you know, he had the more medically trained background. He was trained in the military medicine, and um, and he went on down that path. He believed that uh, there, the body could work well with medicine and that the circulatory system was what controlled and coordinated all of the functions in the body. And that was, at the time, the uh, European way of thinking. So big differences, huge, humongous differences. And D.D. Palmer was correct in all, in all of his assumptions, or in all of his knowledge. He wasn't assuming. He actually had done the research. So here we go. So now we have a bunch of things happening at the same time. We have this group over at the Pennsylvania College that are upset, um, and they want refunds. And we have, uh, you know, the side effects from the drugs and the surgeries and everything. People are starting to, to see that, starting to wake up to it. And then we have the... Um, old man Jenkins doctors that, that the town healers that have been around for a generation or two by, by this point, two, two generations. So, you know, there's, there's all these people. And, and then we also have the poppy field farmers. We have the people that are in control of the poppy fields, which was creating all of the medication at the time. So the doctors decided they got this great idea because they felt that the poppies were, were the wave of the future, that they could control people and, and make them addicted and have them continue to purchase. So they decided that they were going to get together with the poppy farmers. And they, they called them uh, the people that made the tinctures apothecary. So they made these, 
these agreements with the uh, exclusive agreements with the apothecaries. Now, up until that point, the apothecaries could sell to whomever they wanted to. Old Men Jenkins could get the same tinctures as, you know, Doc Martin down the street. So they decided that they were going to corner the market of the poppies and the apothecaries and create an exclusive agreement between them, between the three of them. So this is in, this is listed in the original code of ethics for the American Medical Association, the very first one. And if anyone's interested in reading it, it it's quite, quite fascinating uh, what they did. I mean, this, this is where it happened. So I'd be happy to email you a copy of that. <clears throat> so I'm going to give you my email address before I forget, because I get all caught up in this, you guys. I'm all excited. My email address is kimgorham at gmail.com. That's K-I-M-G-O-R-E-H-A-M at gmail.com. Kimgorham at gmail.com. Just shoot me a little email, say, hey, I'm interested in that, and I'll send you over the information. I think more people that have this, the better. So we've got this going on. So they're cornering the market. Also, in that code of ethics, we find an uh, interesting little paragraph that talks about the um, other doctors that are out there, and, and they, come up with, they come up with a name for them. They call them quacks and charlatans. So there's two terms in that original code of ethics. We're, we're still called quacks. I mean, chiropractors are still considered quacks in some circles. So that term actually is, is inappropriate, and, and it comes from something completely different. The term quack, I found out, comes from the word quack salver. And back in the castle days, you know, when there was castles, people would come to the market, and they would display all of their wares and, and salves. And um, if you, you know, had this really great cream for itching, you know, you would go to market and you would say, Get your itching cream here. Come on down. You know, popcorn and peanuts, you know, that sort of calling. Well, back in the days, the word used to shout out like that or to call out is quack. So quack, quack, you're calling out. And quack salver meant that you were at the market selling your tinctures. There was nothing wrong at all with that phrase. Uh, but – if you were now, it's it's the American Code of Ethics, 1847 original Code of Ethics. If you were caught trying to sell the salves from the apothecaries, they said, and this is where it gets pretty juicy. The college or the American Medical Association put out in its Code of Ethics that three members of the doctor community that had graduated from the Pennsylvania College. So they're looking for three graduates will get together and sue in an open court of law any quack or charlatan that is uh, selling false medical information. So they are to get together in an open court of law and sue Old Man Jenkins for being a charlatan and a quack. And he has no license or no business to be included in the apothecary business at all. So that's what they did to enter into the medical market in the United States back in the 1840s. That's, that's what they did. And to me, does it sound much different than what we're going through today? 
I mean, it's really not that far removed. It's all about the money and the power. It's about who controls the poppy fields and the distribution of the poppy fields. And that is still the way it is today, that you can change out poppies for, you know, Tylenol, coating, you know, whatever. It is still the same thing. It comes from a poppy somewhere <laughs> or another plant. So this is why does this help you in today's day and age? And I think that if we understand where it all stemmed from and why Dee Dee Palmer wanted to be different, he didn't want to include himself in this whole shenanigans that was going on, and he saw it happen. He was old Doc Jenkins. He was that person. So he saw all these things happening, and, and he was outraged, and that is the reason why he stood up in a court of law and said, I will never be a medical doctor. I will never stoop so low as to be one of them. And he meant it. And that's good for him, and that's good for us. That's good for us because we're, we need to be the same. We are the only ones who are telling it like it is in today's market. So, you know, I do all kinds of things to help people to market their practices. I mean, it really depends on the person and, you know, your desire. And you know, I was just talking with uh, a new client today about some of the things that he wanted to go out and promote. And my advice to him was pick one thing. Pick one thing that you are super uber passionate about, about chiropractic. Is it working with active families? Is it working with moms who are about ready to deliver? Is it working with children and active families? You know, who are your favorite patients? Who are they? And if you start with the one, just that one patient, and you say to them, you are just the most fantastic patient. I love working with you for so many reasons, but mostly because you get it and you're taking care of yourself and I really honor that. And I'm looking for more people just like you. I am looking to help more people just like you. Do you know anyone that's having headaches? Do you know anyone that we could talk to? Where do you work? What about your work? Do you think that your work would be interested in having me come and give a health class at lunchtime and bring some sandwiches with me? You know, we just have to get super excited about what it is that we're selling. But we also have to define what it, what that is for us. And there are 65,000 chiropractors or more, a little bit more. And I can tell you this, after 24 years of being in this industry, every single one of you is special. Every single one of you brings something different and unique to the table because of who you are and what your experiences experiences have been to this point. So I encourage you to pick the, your favorite patient, figure out what it is that you love about that patient, what lights you up about them when they walk in the door, and from there, expand upon it. And I'd be willing to help you. I'm pretty good at going through this process. And for Dr. Mike and uh, Chiropractic International uh, clients, I am willing to do a free consultation with you if you're interested in finding out what is that one thing that makes you special and sets you apart, and then I can give you some ideas on how to expand upon it. It doesn't take a lot of money to do marketing if you do it correctly. It really does take a lot of passion and a lot of determination and a lot of uh, 
really just knowledge. You know, we're special. We're special in chiropractic. We we sure are. And there's so so many people that need our help now more than ever before. My goodness, I don't know if you can get me started on the politics. It's giving me high blood pressure. But this 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 world is kind of crazy, you guys. And we really can help our people by becoming more passionate about chiropractic, finding the one thing that makes us stick out, and really enhancing upon that. So, again, um, I'm going to open up now for questions. I hope that you have some. I am also going, if you want to email me, um, I'm also going to be, like I said, putting this video out there uh, with the pictures are going to blow you away, and I'd be happy to give you a copy of the 1847 American Code of Ethics for um, for free. So I'm going to open this up now and conference I'm going to... muted. All right, we're open. If anybody has any questions, do we have any questions? Anybody have any questions for me? I'm only going to ask a couple times, and then we're going to go ahead, <clears throat> go ahead and let you guys go. Anybody have any questions? All right, everyone. Well, this is Kimberly Gorham from Chiropractic International and chirorockstar.com. And if you have any questions at all, please feel free to call me, uh, 858-243-2265 or my email, kimgorham at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Signing off. Have a good day.